All right, so um, the only other thing I wanted to do now is introduce um, our friend Emily. She comes from a, um, a church, which is a part of the church network that we're part of called Blue Ocean. And um, she's from Michigan, Ann Arbor, Michigan. I've heard her talk before. She's amazing. I was looking at the scriptures that she's like going to use as a basis for her talk, and it's Ecclesiastes, and that's going to obviously be very stimulating. And so I can't wait to hear what she has to say. Please give her a New York welcome. Thanks, Peter. May I steal one of these, one of these uh, music stands here? Would that be all right if I just pull it up here? Thank you very much. Man, the worship was amazing this morning, too. So good morning. It's good to be here from Ann Arbor, Michigan, one of your sister churches. I bring you guys greetings. Our whole congregation said, make sure you tell the, uh, the river high from us. We're really glad to be in relationship with you guys. I know some of you probably met and listened to my colleague, Ken Wilson, when he came here to preach, was that a few months? A few months back? Ken is, Ken is like the most delightful human being you could ever know, and a delight to work with as well. Um, he kept saying like how wonderful and how faithful this congregation was, and so it's also a real pleasure to be with you guys this morning. If you haven't met my wife, my wife Rachel is right there in the, the striped shirt. She's sweet, and uh, yeah, she's an author in her own right. I like to brag on her. But we came here a few days early because we wanted to celebrate her 40th birthday in style. So I hear 40 is a big one. I, I wouldn't know. <laughs> I asked her, I said, can I call you my Mrs. Robinson? And she just kind of gave me this look and said, only if I can call you my Dustin Hoffman. And I was like, okay, no, that's, <laughs> that's not going to work. But we've been doing some of the things that tourists do here in New York City. We went and saw The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Waited in line forever, but it was super fun. We got tickets to see 1984. Did any of you guys see that? Yeah, so, we, you know, we sent something to some of our friends and family, and Rachel's brother texted back, and he's like, don't puke. And we were like, what does that mean? And he goes, I hear it's crazy. So we started looking up some of the reviews online and literally like New York Magazine and all of these different things were like, no, you might lose your lunch because the torture scenes are so bad and the lighting is overwhelming. And I was like, okay. So we just considered those tickets a donation to the arts <laughs> and decided to go and celebrate some other ways. So Rachel and I have been happily married for a little over two years now. And so some of you may or may not know, but our relationship was the source of Let's say some tension within some of the wider church circles. Now, for some of my own emotional health, I actually don't like to relive a lot of that time and a lot of detail very often. I have a feeling that will come a little bit later with time. But suffice to say, getting regurgitated out of the evangelical whale when I came out publicly as a gay pastor was not a pleasant experience, even though it's not one that I would trade for anything in the world at this point. And the church community that Ken and I were able to then found and plant as a Blue Ocean Faith Church in Ann Arbor is beautiful and really precious. And I think that this wider church community that we have as Blue Ocean Faith, we're kind of this small but mighty band of people, I think is actually something that is, is really precious to God. And I've never had an opportunity as a pastor to see so many people who had felt on the margins of faith for whatever reason, especially as queer people, but also in other ways, like people who maybe come from more secular backgrounds, like some of you may, 
who have found a place to come and be part of a community that feels authentic and healing for them. And I think that is worth everything. But as I went through what was, I think, probably the most difficult part of my life so far, I was publicly outed as gay, had to come out from the pulpit. That was pretty terrible. Being fired, being exiled from sort of the the church community that had nurtured me from, from childhood. There was a phrase that kept coming to my mind through that time, through those months. And the phrase was, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. And what I found was that I really had to maintain the perspective of the big picture to be able to press forward through all of that mess or else it would just become so overwhelming that I would just shrivel up. And when I say shrivel up, I mean not only just leaving pastoral ministry and probably the church behind, but I remember having this moment in the midst of all of that and thinking if I didn't have Rachel if I didn't have some of the really close friends around me, like, oh, I can understand why people take their lives when they're outed. I mean, it's a really, really, really tender thing. And so I found that I had to find, by necessity, just even for my very life, an understanding of God as bigger than all of the mess of life. I had to come to a real understanding of God as love personified. Right, that God is love. God is not an accuser. God is not one who shames us. God is not one who tells us that we're not enough. God is love, and God is truly good and for our good. And that he or she can use whatever it is that's going on in our life to bring something beautiful out of it. And I think knowing those things in our very gut, in the deepest part of ourselves, is what actually provides the foundation for us Christians as we're working to help bend the moral arc of the universe toward justice, right? It's not just bending on its own for whatever crazy reason God has chosen to use us to help bend that moral arc. So whether it's like these big events going on in life, like denominations splitting over LGBTQ inclusion, or whether it's the very real and dangerous buffoonery of American politics right now, or whether it's things that are going on closer to home, You know, I've got a a dad who has early onset dementia. I have a sister that's going through a terrible divorce from an abusive man. And those are the things that can, I think, be a little bit all-encompassing in our lives or maybe different work situations. And I think it's easy in our culture to sort of feel overwhelmed by these things, to feel accused, to feeling not enough, to feel kind of harried and stressed. And it's really hard when there are all these things going on out there as well as close to our hearts to find time to really experience God in the midst of that fog and that busyness and to be able to touch little bits of the eternal in our day-to-day lives, to be able to have a sense of our connection with both the divine and this larger narrative of God and the world. And this is where I have found the book of Ecclesiastes to be really helpful for me. It was helpful to me during the time I was going through some of my worst issues, but it's been helpful to me in many scenarios in life. And I remember the first time I read it, I shouldn't say the first time, I was one of those weird kids that like read the Bible through, you know, like when I was eight and 10 and stuff in those evangelical circles before becoming an atheist for a little while and then coming back to faith. And so it was after college, I had gone to a liberal arts college, I was a history undergrad major, and so, you know, pretty seeped in postmodern thought as a Gen Xer. And I remember picking up Ecclesiastes sometime in my early to mid-twenties and thinking, oh my gosh, this feels like the first postmodern book ever written, only it was written like thousands of years ago. So if you read it, you'll, you'll, 
get the feeling that the author doesn't feel that there's a whole lot of coherence to life. There's not even a whole lot of coherence within the book in some parts. You get the sense that the author feels that power structures will just evaporate like dust and that meaning is difficult to come by and the book feels kind of angsty. So just as a little background, tradition holds that King Solomon wrote the book. It's penned from the point of view of someone who wants to present themselves as wise. But there's not really any scholarly reason to believe that Solomon is the author. I think maybe there was more of an advantage to having people believe that King Solomon was the author. Probably we're never going to know who wrote it or exactly why they wrote it, which is part of the actual intrigue of the book. Because there's no agreed-upon interpretation or understanding of why it's actually part of the biblical canon. So a few months back, I was reading through some Jewish commentators on the book, and many of them feel that it was actually more of a product of historical circumstance rather than some theological coherence that led to the book being part of our canon. It was after the Babylonian exile that many of the the Jewish scholars, they compiled all of the books that they believed were part of the classical period, and they kind of pulled them together. And because they thought that this one may have been written by King Solomon, it, it landed as part of the biblical canon. However, saying that, the book has become really firmly embedded in both the Jewish and the Christian religious traditions, in part because of this lack of coherence. Right? It's internally incoherent, it's parts of it incoherent with some of the larger narrative strands, but in the Jewish tradition, they believe that, that wisdom is actually to be found in the disagreement. Right? That you've got these different strands of thought that run throughout the Bible, and the wisdom is to be found in sort of arguing through philosophically, theologically, spiritually, to try and arrive at some of those nuggets So Ecclesiastes provides a lot of fodder for this kind of discussion, and it wouldn't have survived if it didn't contain interesting and sound spiritual contributions to the wisdom tradition. So some of you, I know, may have never read the book. Some of you might want a little refresher. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start by reading aloud the first 11 verses of that scripture of the book. So here we go. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. This is the NIV. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all of their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, and then it hurries back again to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and then it turns to the north and round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, and yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams come from, there they return again. Right? So we we see these circular images that the author is giving us. The sun rising, the sun setting, the wind is blowing north and south, the streams and the oceans and the rain. And the author says is, all things are wearisome, more than one can say. The the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear it's full of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. This is where this phrase comes from. There is nothing new under the sun. Oh, the wisdom of that that has survived thousands of years. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? Oh, it was here already long ago. It was here before our time. 
No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Feel the existential crisis of this author, don't you? Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And that becomes a a refrain that runs throughout the entire book. The Hebrew word there that's translated as meaningless is the word havel. And like many words, that's one that can be translated differently depending on the context and the judgment of the translator. The word itself literally means breath or vapor. So on the one hand, the word can convey what is translated there in the NIV. It can convey meaninglessness or futility. That is, a, it's a valid translation of the word. It's used like that in other contexts in different books. But also, it could be conveyed something more akin to fleeting or vapor. And meaningless and fleeting are different concepts. Meaningless and fleeting are different concepts. My time with my dad is fleeting, but it's not meaningless. Your time with your kids growing up in the house is fleeting, but it's not meaningless. Your time in a PhD program, your time at a particular job with a particular mentor, fleeting, but not without value. And many Hebrew scholars feel that Ecclesiastes is better understood when we use fleeting or ephemeral or vapor in place of that English translation of meaningless. So if we reread those first verses, just the first four here, with that translation, it sounds a little bit different. Fleeting, fleeting, says the teacher. Utterly fleeting. Everything is vapor. What do people gain from all of their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. It's not that human labor or existence is meaningless and void. It's that it feels like a swift second in the context of the entirety of history. It's humans come and humans go, but the earth remains, holding its stories like treasure chests. About 10 years ago, I went camping with some friends. We went up to Pictured Rocks National Lakeshore. So I'm I'm a Michigander. And so in Michigan, you know, Michigan looks like a a hand. I don't know if you've seen people do this. So we often will say, well, this is Michigan. I come from here. Well, Pictured Rocks National Lakeshore is actually in the part that's up here. We use two hands. So it's in what's the upper peninsula. It's surrounded by three of the Great Lakes. You've got Lake Superior, Lake Huron, and Lake Michigan around it. And so Pictured Rocks National Lakeshore, I mean, it's really one of the most beautiful national parks and one of the most beautiful shorelines, I think, in the world. And there's this lovely campground up there on the shore of Lake Superior. And so my friends were there, and we decided just to walk down to the beach of Lake Superior one night when it was really clear. And we laid out some blankets, and we just looked up at the stars. And as you're looking up, you get that sense of being so small. I remember looking at the stars and feeling like I'm just this one tiny speck on this tiny piece of rock floating in this somewhat smallish galaxy tucked away in a universe that is still expanding, making me even smaller. And I know that we've all felt that way at certain times. Probably you've had a time or two in your life where you can remember the poignancy of that smallness 
what it is to be a human in the context of the universe. Well, in many ways, the entirety of the book of Ecclesiastes is about just this. It's about our smallness. And it's about our transience, about how things don't last. It's about taking a camera and like zooming back, putting humans and all of our human crises in perspective. And that yes, human injustice is awful and pain and grief and sickness are horrid and they're real and we have to live in that realness and we do believe that Jesus is with us in that realness. The name and scripture given to Messiah is Emmanuel, God with us in the midst of all of this. And yet, the author of Ecclesiastes challenges us to believe that there's a certain peace and a certain release of anxiety that we can you know, just touch barely when we let ourselves step back and meditate on the vapor that composes both human problems as well as human endeavors. And the author's telling us these things are fleeting, and in the end, God's justice and God's presence is going to prevail over all of this. God's presence and God's wisdom is more real, and it's more non-fleeting than all of life summed up, both the good and the bad. This wise old teacher in Ecclesiastes says that he's had wealth and he's had pleasure, and these pass. In the end, it goes away. He's worked hard, he's pursued wisdom, but in the end, that goes away. He's been an oppressor, and he's experienced depression, and that too will pass away to await the judgment of God. He mentions everything waits for God's judgment four times in the 12 chapters that compose that book. And in fact, he ends the whole thing with, this, with that thought. The very end of Ecclesiastes says this. It says, now that all of it has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Yeah, it's like such a, you know, tell us, teacher, what's the conclusion? <laughs> Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all humankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. In other words, trust that in the end, all is going to be made right. Trust that a God who is just and good will be the judge of all human action. And the judging is out of our hands. That is one of the deepest and wisest truths that we can come to as people of faith. The judging is out of our hands. Now, in light of the author of Ecclesiastes' concluding statement, there are numerous ways that rabbis and preachers and philosophers have interpreted this book. So some of them believe that the author is telling us that we should just withdraw from all of the complexities of life. As much as possible, we should just enjoy the good that there is, and then we'll just let God handle the rest, because who are we? We're so small and so insignificant and so fleeting that nothing we do really matters. And in the end, if God's the judge anyway, eh. But then there are others, following in the wake of like Martin Luther, who I don't usually quote in sermons, who read it and they say, no, what the wise teacher is doing is encouraging us to find rest within our current social, political, and relational realities. Right? They claim it's a perspective that lets us zoom out and zoom way up here to get a bird's eye view of the world, not so that we can fly away and sort of leave it, but so that we can come back down into our realities with a better sense of God's permanence in the midst of humanity's big story. 
but it's meant to engender a sense of awe of the divine in relation to our human frailty and impermanence. That it's meant to give us a perspective so that we can continue to work toward justice and peace in the world when everything seems at a loss. It gives us a sense of in the end all shall be well so that we know what it is that we're working toward. Now, I don't know about you guys, but some people love to hate on the Dave Matthews Band. But I'm a Gen Xer, and I grew up with Satellite and Crash and Tripping Billy, and I am going to fully own and admit that I still like that band. Thank you. I got, I got an amen in the back there, right? You know, it was like, like my first real concert I went to. It reminds me of high school and college. And that last song, Trippin' Billy, is a, is a pretty famous one, even though the, the title's kind of odd. But it has a famous refrain, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Do you guys know? I think I, I don't want to sing it. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Because of Trippin' Billy, I, I, which I don't know what that means. But that eat, drink, and be merry, that's a quote from Ecclesiastes. Also Isaiah, who's later quoting him as well. But that's a quote from Ecclesiastes where the author says this. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be merry. And then Isaiah adds, for tomorrow we die. (laughs) Thanks, Isaiah. (laughs) Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life that God has given them under the sun. Or in another place, Ecclesiastes says, go, eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, your spouse, your partner, whom you love. All the days of this fleeting life that God has given you under the sun. All of your fleeting days, for this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. The author is telling us that to find rest in this life We must appropriately enjoy the good things that life offers. And sometimes when things are genuinely bad, it's not easy to either identify or to stop to enjoy those blessings. But if we can find ways to do so, this wise teacher says, life will be better. Life will be better. You know, I had this little moment with my parents a couple of weeks ago. My family's in Indianapolis where I grew up. And I went down there for their 65th birthday party. They were born within two weeks of each other. So I'm down there, and I'm sitting at their kitchen table, and I'm playing Yahtzee with my dad because it's one of those things he can still do. And we're just sitting there, the three of us, talking about my dad's health issues, which are a little bit overwhelming sometimes for me. And we're talking a little bit about what's going on in my sister's life. And in the midst of, like, all of this really heavy conversation that's going on, all of a sudden my dad gets distracted by a hummingbird at the hummingbird feeder outside. And then both of my parents, we just stop, kind of mid-thought, mid-sentence, and we're just watching it and noticing the beauty and how the, you know, the wings are so fast and they look like a hovercraft and talking about how we can reposition the things so they can see them better. And it felt like just capturing this breath of appreciation for goodness in the midst of life. I found it really beautiful. And in the same way, my my sisters and I, I've got two younger sisters, we decided that we were going to take my mom out to celebrate her 65th birthday. None of us has really, like, had enough money to, like, do something really nice for my parents. You know, now we're a little bit older. We thought, 65, that's a big one. So we reserved a a space at this 
Okay, it's a fancy pants restaurant for Indianapolis. Like New York, it's not going to like hold a torch to it, right? But it's one of those restaurants that like goes in a circle or in, like above the, the city line so that you can see the whole city. And so we're up there with a couple of my mom's friends and I told my mom, I was like, you know, gosh, we just really want to be able to celebrate with you. And she, you know, she comes from, like, her mom was a Depression-era baby. Her mom grew up on a farm in Oklahoma during the Dust Bowl. I mean, you don't spend money like that. And so my mom's up in this restaurant, which is like an average-priced restaurant for here in Lower Manhattan. And she's, like, looking at the appetizers for a meal. And my sisters and I, seriously, she's like, well, I could just get the crab cakes. (laughs) for $12, you know. So I just had to say to her, I was like, Mom, like, I know you don't like to spend this kind of money, but Mindy and Lindsay and I, we came here prepared to spend some money because sometimes you have to feast and you have to honor the people that you're with and feasting and enjoying your friends and your family is a really important part of life. Like, you'll remember this for the, like, probably for the rest of your life. Like, this is something to be cherished, so please get whatever you want. And she did. And in fact, she was like really getting into that. (laughs) And it was really great. It was lovely. You know, the author of Ecclesiastes actually shows disdain for people who have wealth but who store it away like misers and refuse to enjoy it. We know money in and of itself is not a bad thing. Money is not bad. Now, Jesus says the love of money is the root of all evil. Right? That's what gets twisted and distorted. When we love money or we feel anxious about money, then we yeah, want to squirrel it away and not be generous or else we feel greedy and we want more than we actually need. But money isn't bad. And what I've come to believe as a person of faith is that one of the best ways to use money, besides for our, you know, our basic needs and living life, is to be generous with others, generous with the poor, and to build relationships that money is to be used for building connections and relationships with other people and to really enjoy life with others. Ecclesiastes says, go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. One of the keys in this verse, I think, are the qualifiers. Eat with gladness. Drink with a joyful heart. There's this element of being able to receive the goodness of these gifts that God has given us with happiness and with gratitude. And part of the benefit of zooming out for perspective is learning to be grateful for the blessings that are found down here in the vapor, that things and people come and go and bad situations come and go and jobs come and go, but thank the good Lord above for the blessings in the midst of all of these storms. Now, I was reading a column in the the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, um, I do actually read the New York Times. I pay for it too, Peter, just so you know. (laughs) It's a recurring column that some of you probably read called Modern Love. Maybe some of you guys saw this column. Oh my goodness, it's so good. People send their stories in about what it is to fall in love in this day and age, well, and out of love. And so this particular person was writing about a story about how she slowly fell in love with a man who had been her friend. And so she talks about, it seemed like they'd had a a friendship that was a little bit longer, um, had been taking place for a few months, and then eventually they became lovers. And then she wrote this. She said, not long after that, he set off on a cycling tour overseas. And my expectations of commitment were low. 
So I was surprised to receive messages every day from remote villages that had weak reception and invitations to connect on Skype. He sent me links to hit songs from the 80s, like Don't You Forget About Me, and pictures of luminous markets at night. We snapped photos of handwritten letters and we emailed them to each other like postcards twisted by time travel. So she writes about how he came home and they spent months together, many more months, seemingly happy, and she was to the point where she wanted to spend the rest of her life with him. And then all of a sudden, what felt like out of the blue to her, he broke up with her. And the title of the story was The 12-Hour Goodbye That Started Everything, which sums up the length of their breakup talk, which she was cautioning, never let somebody break up with you for 12 hours because it's misery. She said, in the end, I loved him more than he loved me. And so she ended up spending a year in therapy trying to get over this connection that she had with him, trying to grieve and to move past her expectations of what that relationship could have looked like. And she was saying, I I just can't figure out why I can't get over it. She said, I've got my dream job. I feel like I'm working in a place that's healthy for me. She said, I feel like I've processed my emotions. I've processed the good and the bad about the relationship and tried to come to some conclusions about what I maybe could have done differently or what I might look for in the future. She's like, I've been exercising. I've been doing all the right things, and yet I still think about this person. And so she went to her therapist, and she said, you know, why can't I just get over it already? And her therapist said this. She said, you're asking the wrong question. It's not, about getting, um, it's not about getting over and letting go. It's not about getting over this person and letting go. And so this author says, well, I looked down at my hands and I considered how this could possibly be about anything else. Like, that's why I'm in therapy. And her therapist said, well, it's about honoring what happened. You met a person who awoke something in you. A fire ignited. And the work is to be grateful. The work is to be grateful every day that someone crossed your path and left a mark on you. And as I read that story, I thought, wow, this is kind of a lovely summation of Ecclesiastes. You know, the work of life and all of the sleetingness isn't about getting over and letting go of things, letting go of all the things. Work comes, work goes, money comes, money goes. Rulers rise, rulers fall, comical, self-absorbed, dangerously immature kings and presidents come to power and they fall from grace, not to diminish the danger of it, which is real, but there is truly nothing new under the sun. And however, in the midst of all of this, part of the spiritual work is to be grateful. Part of the spiritual work is to find goodness and to find blessings and to be thankful for those. Part of the spiritual work is to eat and to drink, and to be merry with those that we love. Not so that we can check out of the complications of life, but so we can continue to do the work of justice and healing that is part of this larger narrative of justice and healing in the world. The vapor of humanity and of all of the events, it's like this living stream that flows from generation to generation, and it's fleeting to us as we're just small parts of this flow of vapor in this larger whole, but there's an underlying narrative, the author of Ecclesiastes says, that is one of a good God that is working through that stream of vapor for our ultimate good. And that God is working through that vapor to give meaning to it. And that even though our lives are fleeting, they're not meaningless. And that it's a spiritual and it's a sacred practice 
to stop and to be grateful, to stop and smell the roses. Now, I don't know if you guys do this, but at our church, we like to do a little meditation, whether silence or meditation, at the end of each service. So if you're game, we might do that here. You know, when I say silence, people and and kids and whatever make noise, so it doesn't have to be perfectly silent. But what we'll do is just have you get comfortable. Find a place that feels good for you. You can close your eyes if you want. And what I'll do is I'll paint a little picture for you, and then I'm going to read some of the verses from Ecclesiastes, and then I'll guide you back down into a different picture just so you know what to expect. So if you're game, let's just start by taking a couple of really deep breaths with some silence and centering ourselves. You can say, you know, maybe, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Most High God, have mercy on me, a sinner, as you breathe. Jesus Christ, Son of the Most High God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, in this space... I invite you to imagine a scenario that's causing you some stress in your life. Whether that's Trump or whether that's something more personal. And as you do that, I want you to to focus on some of the discomfort that you're feeling. If it's fear or anger or whatever it may be. But just sit in that scenario for a little bit. As you're seeing that in your mind's eye, I invite you to just zoom back. Zoom out like a camera. Go as high as you'd like in order to see it in a wider perspective. Notice what you're seeing. Notice how large or how small does that scenario look and what does it look like in the whole of what you're seeing in your mind. As you hold that picture in your mind, I'm going to read out 13 verses of a relatively famous part of Ecclesiastes. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. 
a time to tear down and a time to build. There's a time to weep, and there's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. There's a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. There's a time to embrace. And there's a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search, a time to give up. There's a time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. There's a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all of their toil. This is the gift of God. Now I invite you to zoom back in, but instead of landing on that scenario that causes you stress, imagine yourself eating and drinking with your closest friends or family, with the people who make you happy, and pay attention to that scenario and what that feels like. going to close with a prayer of thanksgiving. Jesus, we are so thankful for the blessings that are to be found in the midst of life. We thank you for the good things that you've given us. We thank you for the monetary blessings that you've given us in order to be able to be generous and to enjoy life. We ask that we would steward those well. We ask that we can be a blessing to those who are around us. We ask that when we're on the receiving end of that, that we are able to receive your goodness. We thank you for love. We thank you for laughter. We thank you for chosen family. We thank you for your work of peace and justice in this world. We thank you for this community of faith. We thank you for the wider community of Blue Ocean. We thank you for the wider church that is part of the global human family. We praise you for all that you are. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.